Good afternoon. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I want to thank Senator Merkley for joining me to convene this hearing. I'm grateful for our partnership on this and so many other issues. I also want to thank our distinguished nominees uh, for being here, and I also want to thank Senator Cornyn, a good colleague from Texas, for being here. This afternoon, we will consider four nominees for positions that are important to this committee and to our country. We will divide today's hearings into two panels. The first panel will include two nominees. First is the Honorable Kevin Moley, who's nominated to be Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs. Ambassador Moley served as the representative of the United States to the Office of the United Nations and other international organizations in Geneva from 2001 to 2006. Ambassador Moley, I would also like to note and, and thank you for your service in the United States Marine Corps. Hoorah. The second nominee on the first panel, panel is the Honorable Josephine Olson, who is nominated to serve as the Director of the Peace Corps. Dr. Olson has deep experience in the Peace Corps, beginning in 1966 as a Peace Corps volunteer in Tunisia. She later served as Country Director, Regional Director, Chief of Staff, Deputy Director, and then Acting Director. I welcome both of you. Our second panel will also include two nominees. First will be Mr. Eric Bethel, who is nominated to be the United States Alternate Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Mr. Bethel has spent more than two decades in work related to finance and emerging markets. I'd also note that Mr. Bethel is a proud fellow graduate of the United States Naval Academy. The second panel will also include Mr. Sean Karen Cross, who's nominated to be the Chief Executive Officer of the Millennium Challenge Corporation, or MCC. Mr. Karen Cross currently serves as a Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Advisor to the Chief of Staff. With that, I would now like to call on Ranking Member Merkley for his opening remarks. Senator Merkley. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, and I'm, I'm pleased that we have these nominees uh, here today for these four in, important international roles. And I hope that each of the individuals believes in the work of the Bureau or agency that they've been nominated to lead. I have been disturbed by the Trump administration's proposed budgets, which for two consecutive years have cut U.S. funding for diplomacy and development by over 30 percent. These organizations have a tremendous amount to offer. As leaders, you must know that stewardship and, is, uh, and command responsibility are critically important. The professional men and women who serve in the bureaus and agencies are working very hard, advocating every day for Americans' interests, and deserve excellent leadership that supports them, defends them, protects their work from political attacks. The roles that each of you have been nominated to serve represent some of the most important work our country undertakes in addressing pressing global challenges. Your leadership comes at a time when many have been disappointed in the de-emphasis of diplomacy and development under the current administration. When people around the world look at what truly makes America great, it is our belief that we can do well when others do well, but prosperity is complementary, not a zero-sum. As the United States emerged as a global leader in the 20th century, one of our proudest legacies was in helping to create the multilateral institutions that would provide a platform for nations to resolve conflict without resorting to bloodshed. The result has not always been perfect. It's sometimes hard to recognize, 
what conflicts have been prevented. But much excellent work has been done, and many conflicts have been prevented, and much development has been promoted. The bureaus and agencies that our nominees are proposed to lead represent some of the many complementary ways that U.S. leadership engagement have evolved to meet the challenges we face in the 21st century. The Bureau of International Organizational Affairs, or I.O., is a nerve center for supporting U.S. engagement through all our United Nations missions and through other important multilateral forum. For more than 56 years, the Peace Corps has provided American citizens of all ages and from all walks of life the opportunity to serve abroad by providing their expertise to developing communities and sharing their experiences and passion with others when they return home. The International Bank for Reconstruction Development is also critical. As a nation, we are justly proud that after World War II, the Marshall Plan helped rebuild Europe into a community of nations that have been among our most stalwart allies in meeting the challenges we face today. But even before the war was won, we worked with our allies to develop international financial agreements that would complement our political and military efforts to achieve and maintain peace, including the IBRD, which was set up to encourage international trade necessary to rebuild and reintegrate global markets. And finally, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, or MCC, a relatively new initiative started under George W. Bush. It's had a distinct track record of success, complementing our broader aid and development policies and programs, operating as a new model for providing foreign aid for economic development based on partnerships with recipient countries designed to use American aid as a catalyst rather than a substitute for local-based economic development. I look forward to hearing from each of the witnesses about how they'll ensure that America continues to lead on diplomacy and development. Well, thank you, Senator Merkley. Um, in order to be respectful of my colleagues' time, I would now invite Senator Cornyn to say any comments you like, sir. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman and uh, members of the committee. I appreciate your allowing me to be here today to recommend an extremely well-qualified candidate, Sean Karencross, to be the chief executive officer of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Sean, as you pointed out, Mr. Chairman, currently serves as the deputy assistant to the President of the United States as well as a senior advisor to the President's Chief of Staff. Um, Sean was my lawyer for an important period of time, and in that capacity, I entrusted him with my professional life, my reputation, and my future. And I don't uh, know how much more I could say than that in terms of my confidence in him, and I hope the confidence you will learn to have in him and his judgment. Uh, he was the executive, uh, deputy executive director and general counsel at the National Republican Senatorial Committee for two cycles and uh, represented me individually uh, to make sure I complied with all applicable laws after he left that particular position. As I've hinted at, he is a man of great character and on numerous occasions has proven his ability to deftly respond to adversity and conflict. He's a man of many talents and wide-ranging interests. He's a lawyer by training, as I said, holding a JD from New York University, but he also has a master's from Cambridge in international relations. And perhaps his most important qualification, he is a de devoted husband and father of two wonderful children. I'm sure his experience, his character, um, his training will prepare him for uh, well to serve in this new challenge. Obviously, the Millennium 
Challenge Corporation, as Senator Merkley said, has been an important part of our diplomatic efforts and support for developing countries. And I know this is a challenge that Sean looks forward to enthusiastically. And I have every confidence he will perform in a way that will make all of us proud and that will serve our country well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you, uh, Senator Cornyn, for your presence uh, here today. You're welcome to stay if you like, but um, uh, if you need to depart, uh, I certainly understand that. With that, um, Ambassador Moley, uh, I, I would welcome uh, your, uh, your opening statement, uh, five minutes or less, please. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley. I'm honored to be here today as the President's nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizations. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my wife of 48 years, Dorothy. Unfortunately, she can't be here, but I wouldn't be here without her support, advice, patience, and above all, love. I'd also like to think, thank two senior uh, former career members of our Foreign Service who are here today uh, in support of my nomination. Assistant Secretary of State Linda Thomas-Greenfield, former Ambassador Greenfield to Liberia, and also former Director General of the Foreign Service, as well as Ambassador Jim Foley, who was our Ambassador to Haiti, and later our Ambassador to Croatia, and later still Deputy Commandant of the War College. I've been privileged and honored to have served my country in the administrations of three presidents. During President Reagan administrations, in positions of increasing responsibility at HICFA, now CMS. In President Bush 41's administration, as Assistant Secretary of Management and Budget, and later as the Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. In President Bush 43's administration, following 9-11, I was nominated to be U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. and other international organizations in Geneva. I was confirmed and served for four and a half years as Ambassador. Following my tenure as Ambassador, I served as Chairman of the Board of Project Concern International, a San Diego-based NGO doing development work in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. In that capacity, I traveled to Mexico, Guatemala, Tanzania, Zambia, and Ethiopia to observe and assist in PCI's mission. In Tanzania, Zambia, and Ethiopia, I met with our U.S. ambassadors to solicit their views and advice. If confirmed, I would lead the Bureau of International Organization Affairs, which is the U.S. government's primary interlocutor with the United Nations and other international agencies and organizations. The Bureau is charged with advancing the President's vi vision a robust multilateral engagement as a crucial tool in advancing U.S. national interests. U.S. multilateral engagement spans a wide range of global issues, including peace and security, nuclear proliferation, human rights, economic development, global health, and many more. Within the Department of State, the Bureau of International Organization Affairs is known as the Bureau Without Borders, neither constrained by geography nor subject matter. The range of issues within its purview is extremely broad, and to meet its challenges require the expertise of not only our very able career foreign service officers and civil servants, but also the expertise from other bureaus of the State Department, other agencies of government, as well as outside experts. If confirmed, I would look forward to working collegially with all those in and out of government to further America's interests. My guiding principle, if confirmed, to lead I.O. will be America first, but not alone. This means, for example, that at USUN New York, under the extraordinarily able leadership of Ambassador Haley and her team, we will, when necessary, to protect our interests and those of allies, not hesitate to use the veto, as we have done recently when Israel was most unfairly attacked. In Geneva and elsewhere, where we have U.S. missions to the U.N. and do not have the benefit of the veto, we must be extremely vigilant to protect America's interests. 
For example, in Geneva, we most, must protect America's most important product, intellectual property, in the deliberations of the World Intellectual Property Organization. Likewise, we must protect the integrity and fair use of the internet at the International Telecommun Telecommunications Union. The, there are over 20 international organizations in Geneva, in all of which we have important issues at stake. In Vienna, at our mission to UNV, we have vital interests before the IAEA and other agencies. In Rome, at our mission to the United Nations, we must increase our efforts to promote sustainable development. In Montreal, at our mission to ICAO, we will protect America's civil aviation interests. In Nairobi, we have interest in protecting the environment and reducing property, poverty. I have touched on only a few of the plethora of important issues which will confront the Bureau Without Borders. I'm sure you have interests which I have not mentioned. I look forward to your questions. In summary, Senators, I am proud to have served our nation as an Assistant Secretary, Deputy Secretary, and United States Ambassador. However, the title of which I am most proud I earned over 50 years ago on the parade deck at Paris Island, South Carolina, United States Marine. Semper Fi, thank you. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, and other distinguished members of the committee, including Senator Cardin from my home state of Maryland. It is an honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee to lead the Peace Corps. I am grateful to President Trump for his trust and confidence. I'm also grateful to all those who helped me prepare for today. I also want to recognize my family members who are here today and watching live in Portland, Oregon, and in Salt Lake City, Utah. I vividly remember standing in a small classroom before 40 students on my first day as a Peace Corps volunteer in Tunisia. I was 22 years old, nervous, and had no idea what my first words would be in Arabic, French, or English. I stepped forward, said my name, and asked for theirs. Together with that day's lesson, my two years as a Peace Corps volunteer began. I discovered who I was in the face of challenges and circumstances that I had never known. I learned to listen to, respond, and honor people who were different than me. I learned about a way of life in North Africa that was unlike mine in Salt Lake City, Utah. I learned that regardless of differences, there was so much that connected us. I also learned what it meant to serve my country, to be part of something far, far greater than myself. From that day in Tunisia, service in the Peace Corps have remained central themes of my life. Since taking my oath as a volunteer, I have been passionately dedicated to lifting up the mission and goals of the agency. My Peace Corps journey continued when I became a country director, then regional director, later chief of staff, deputy director, and subsequently acting director. Each of these vantage points have reaffirmed my deep belief in the power of the Peace Corps to change lives across borders and here at home. Time and again, I have had the honor of seeing Americans engaging with communities in countless countries throughout the world. I have also seen the remarkable way that returned Peace Corps volunteers teach, inspire, and strengthen communities here at home. Becoming a Peace Corps volunteer ignites a passion for service that illuminates credible possibility around the world and throughout the United States. This passion for service glows in Memphis, Tennessee, where returned Peace Corps volunteer Jay Selliman brought back to life the Blues Foundation, which is now the largest blues organization in the world. 
Jay, who after serving as a legal advisor in the Peace Corps in the Solomon Islands, understood the importance of helping preserve American history and the role that communities play. This is why he both raised funds globally to build the Blues Hall of Fame in Memphis and simultaneously developed initiatives to extend community outreach. This passion also glows in the more than 7,000 volunteers who are currently serving in more than 60 countries. This passion also glows in the more than 230,000 returned Peace Corps volunteers, the majority of whom live here in the United States. Returned Peace Corps volunteers bring home unique language, cultural, and diplomatic skills. They return with deep knowledge about the countries where they served and new perspectives about the ways in which our country engages with the world. Today, they are running Fortune 500 companies, leading NASA missions on the International Space Station, helping Alaska Native villages with food security, and teaching our nation's next generation of leaders at schools and universities across this country. In addition to my Peace Corps service, my work at the University of Maryland these past eight years has further prepared me to lead the Peace Corps, if confirmed. As a professor, I guided the university's global health education programs and saw the importance of cross-community collaboration and capacity building for sustainable impact. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, many of you have asked about my vision for Peace Corps within its mission and three goals. First, if confirmed, I will ensure that the Peace Corps remains the world's preeminent volunteer agency that offers all Americans the opportunity to serve their country, regardless of age, where they live, or walk of life. Second, I will conduct a full country portfolio review to both make certain that Peace Corps is sending volunteers to interested countries where they are most needed, where they stand poised to achieve the greatest impact, and where they deliver the best return on investment for American taxpayers. Third, I will ensure that the Peace Corps recruit the most resilient volunteers and that while serving, the agency's top priorities will always remain keeping them safe, healthy, and productive in doing their jobs. This includes senators continuing to reduce risks for volunteers and respond effectively and compassionately to those who become victims of crime, including sexual assault. Volunteers can count on the Peace Corps being there for them every step of the way as the agency continues to advance its mission, which has changed countless lives in its 57 years, and I have no doubt, countless more in the years to come. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, and other distinguished members of the committee, again, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. Thank you for your support for the Peace Corps and its incredible volunteers. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Doctor. Ambassador Moley, as you know, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that is significantly more potent than heroin. Fentanyl and related substances are linked to the horrible and ongoing opioid epidemic in this country and have become increasingly available. This is a terrible problem around the country, I know, but uh, most especially, I would say, uh, in certain states like my home state of Indiana. According to the Congressional Research Service, quote, clandestine produced fentanyl, as well as most illicit fentanyl precursor chemicals and fentanyl analogs, are primarily sourced from China and smuggled into the United States through Mexico, Canada, or other direct mail, unquote. 
In addition, the DEA suspects Mexican labs may use precursor chemicals smuggled over the southwestern border to produce fentanyl. Mr. Moley, as the Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs, you would develop and implement U.S. policy as it relates to international organizations. If confirmed, do you commit to working closely with me and my office to ensure our nation has the optimal strategy for using our voice, our vote, and our influence in international organizations to address, it, to address the illicit international production and trafficking of fentanyl and related substances? Senator, thank you for your question. Uh, and yes, I certainly will make that commitment to work with you and your staff to combat fentanyl trafficking. Specifically, uh, the Universal Postal Union, based in Bern, Switzerland, which is in the purview of our UN mission to Geneva, uh, and quite frankly, when I served there, was something of an afterthought. Uh, it is now front line, front center, in terms of our ability to combat uh, the opioid crisis, exploit, exploiting vulnerabilities in U.S. and international mail. In fact, uh, Senators Portman and Carper released a report on January 24th uh, on this very subject. And there's much that we can do uh, in increasing our ability to uh, intercept that traffic using uh, AEDs, advanced electronic data, i.e. barcodes with more information about the sender, which is often not in place when mail comes into the United States carrying trafficking fentanyl. Uh, so absolutely make that commitment to work with you and your staff and others. I know others on this committee are in states that also have extreme opioid crises. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador, and I, um, I know the people of Indiana appreciate that commitment as well. Uh, Mr. Moley, as you know, Ambassador Haley has prioritized UN peacekeeping reform. What do you see as the top priority when it comes to UN peacekeeping reform? UN peacekeeping reform, uh, Senator, is is very important priority for Ambassador Haley and all of us who, if confirmed, would be working in I.O. Uh, there are over 100,000 uh, UN peacekeepers, uh, an expense of $8 billion in 15 missions currently. There have been issues in respect to sexual exploitation and abuse. Uh, on the other hand, there's a recent GAO report that suggests that it's much less expensive uh, for UN peacekeepers to be used in some of these areas than obviously would be to use US armed forces. Uh, so it's very important uh, that we make sure that uh, Secretary General Guterres, who is making reform efforts in this area, has the tools necessary to assure that the units that are deployed are appropriate for the cause they are serving and are well-trained and do not subject the uh, indigenous population to sexual uh, abuse and exploitation. Well, I appreciate your interest in and, and knowledge of uh, this issue, as I know the ranking member does. Uh, on September 7th, Senator Merkley and I sent a letter to the General Accountability Office requesting a formal review of all ongoing United Nations peacekeeping operations, and that review is underway and is about uh, one-third complete. When that review is complete, if confirmed, do you commit to reviewing it and working with my office uh, and other members of this committee to implement any prudent recommendations for UN peacekeeping? Absolutely, Senator. If confirmed, I would look forward to working with you and your staff on this issue because UN peacekeepers are at the heart of the UN's credibility. And if we lose credibility for those peacekeepers, uh, then we have little further to go on. And, and it's absolutely essential. And I believe uh, Secretary General Guterres shares that view as well. Dr. Olson, hello. Many in, uh, who are observing these hearings may not be familiar with the Peace Corps. 
Uh, based on your deep experience in the Peace Corps as well as your preparation for this hearing, perhaps in your own words uh, you can share for those who are watching um, what you see as, as the fundamental mission or purpose of the Peace Corps. Thank you very much, Senator, for that question. Peace Corps mission is world peace and friendship and three goals to assist in technical assistance with counterparts in countries that invite volunteers to serve. Second, to share who they are as Americans. And third, to bring that experience back home, sharing with Americans as return volunteers continue to serve. Thus, the core purpose of Peace Corps, or the core mission and activities of Peace Corps, is to recruit from all Americans to ensure they have good situations in which to serve and to keep them safe, secure, and healthy while serving. So how are we doing? How is the Peace Corps doing in fulfilling uh, that important mission? And what are some areas you believe may require increased attention? And if you could highlight how you envision addressing any of these areas that may require increased attention, uh, that would be most helpful. Thank you, Senator. Peace Corps is doing very well. Uh, I obviously have biases. Peace Corps' recruitment is at about 22,000 people apply a year, the highest ever, with 7,300 volunteers in the field in over 60 countries. As I said before, uh, the welcome to Peace Corps around the world is very strong and the collaboration with countries is very strong. And the work that return Peace Corps volunteers do here in the United States affects communities, education institutions throughout the United States. Peace Corps needs to continue to focus on strong programming, strong health support, and risk reduction for crime and sexual assault. Peace Corps has come a long way in the last few years, particularly the last two or three years, in setting up systems that can greatly reduce the risk of crime and sexual assault. If confirmed, I will focus strongly on strong programming, strong health support, strong risk reduction in safety and security, and honoring those volunteers who have returned back to this country to serve here. Thank you. Um, with that, uh, I will turn to the ranking member, Senator Merkley. Uh, thank you both for your testimony and for your willingness to consider leading these organizations. Ms. Olson, I'm delighted to know that you have a son and, and his family in, in Oregon and that you visit it regularly, so continue to visit often. And that you bring an extensive background in the Peace Corps to consideration of, of this, this mission of leadership. You mentioned in your testimony that there's no higher priority for the Peace Corps than the safety and security of our volunteers as the agency continues to advance its mission. It is, in fact, um, a setting that Peace Corps volunteers put themselves into that is not inherently safe, doesn't have many of the layers of protection that we might have in our lives here in the, in the United States. Uh, friends nearby, all forms of communication, uh, uh, transportation, and, and so forth. And so there is an inherent risk, but obviously 
Lee, you, you hope to minimize that. And so I thought I would just ask, as one looks back on some of the cases of the past that received some considerable attention, the Kate Pusey case, which I think happened when you were an acting director, and uh, Nick Castle, um, we passed the Nick Castle Act that, well, recently passed the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee, uh, in which he had died in China as a Peace Corps volunteer without adequate medical care. As you look back on some of these things, how does it shape your, your, the sense of where you want to, to go in trying to en enhance, under difficult conditions, uh, the, the health and welfare of the volunteers? Thank you, Senator. And my grandchildren are waving at you right now from their classroom in Portland, Oregon. All right. <laughs> the <clears throat> I still grieve the murder of Kate Pusey, and I remain heartbroken. And in honor of her life and her light as a Peace Corps volunteer in Benin, I commit to continue to strengthen safety and security, privacy support through training, through safety and security officers, through regional officers to ensure that risk reduction can continue to be as strong as absolutely possible. Also note with the passing of uh, Mr. Castle, who was a volunteer in China, and the legislation that is, I know, now before you. Any legislation that strengthens the commitment of Peace Corps in safety and security and in health is critical for the agency. And the agency is grateful that the Senate staff worked with the Peace Corps in shaping and building that very important piece of legislation. I personally, if, um, if confirmed, will continue to directly work with the Office of Victim Advocacy and the Office of Sexual Assault Risk Reduction and Response. The two offices at Peace Corps that are involved in training all Peace Corps staff and all Peace Corps volunteers in sexual assault risk reduction and response, and that that continued in service training and support stay strong, that Peace Corps continue to be a best practices agency that works strongly with other agencies and organizations. Oh, thank, thank you very much, I appreciate that. And Ambassador uh, Molly, I wanted to uh, give you a chance just to state a few things on the record. You're an investor with a broad portfolio that touches on many market sectors that could be influenced by U.S. policy at the U.N. My understanding is that, that you have agreed uh, to, uh, if confirmed, uh, sell those, those holdings that raise conflict of interest concerns. Is that, is that correct? Yes, I have, Senator. I have signed an uh, ethics agreement that would require me to divest those interests. Great. Uh, thank you. In 2004, you wrote a letter to the editor of the International Herald Tribune that defended the Bush administration's practices in, in the detention of any comba enemy combatants in Guantanamo. Uh, is there any, oh, there's been a lot of debate in the many years, 14 years since, and we learned a lot. Is there any ways in which your thoughts in regard to the detention have, have evolved? Well, they've evolved to the extent, uh, Senator, that I still believe that Lord Stein was uh, was repudiated by the very fact that he mentioned that we were 
conducting uh, the detentions at Guantanamo illegally against both U.S. law, international law, and the Geneva Conventions. And as we now know, of course, in the case of Hamdan v. Rumsfeld, decided June 29, 2006, of course, uh, we subjected uh, our detention uh, uh, principles uh, in Guantanamo to our courts. Uh, and we are under now a new legal framework than we were at the time. Obviously, my letter was not written without the assistance and clearance of legal counsel from State Department, from the Justice Department, uh, from the Defense Department, and from the State Department. Uh, but as I said, uh, Hamdan v. Rumsfeld, I think, clearly repudiates Lord Stein's principal contention that we were operating outside the law. Uh, thank you. I will note that in contesting his arguments, uh, you argued that his concern that use of force was presented against the, the prisoners, uh, you contested that and said we are operating uh, completely on humane treatment of detainees. Uh, we did have significant additional information. Any, any changes in your thoughts in that regard? Uh, to the extent that I was wrong at the time, it was by virtue of the assurances I had received from the Department of the Navy. Uh, thank, thank you very much. Uh, the um, Trump administration has cut funding to the United Nations Population Fund, which provides critical maternal and family planning support to women and children in vulnerable situations. I saw them at work in the refugee camps in Bangladesh, providing essential aid as hundreds of thousands of refugees were pouring in. If confirmed, would you consider advocating to restore this critical funding? Uh, Senator, I was not uh, present, of course, uh, when those deliberations and decisions were being made, and I certainly will uh, look into that issue. I know that there are differences of opinion in regard to that issue. In fact, my predecessor, uh, Sheba Crocker, Assistant Secretary of State at the time, uh, has said that the uh, uh, rationale for cutting those funds is incorrect, and I will be taking into consideration both her comments, quite frankly, and also those of those people who made the decision at the time. So it is an issue of importance to many of you on the committee, and I will, in fact, look into it. Thank you. If confirmed. I'd note that uh, we are likely to go to multiple rounds here uh, by member's request, uh, so uh, at least two rounds. Again, uh, seven minutes for questions. Senator Gardner. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Does that mean I get both rounds now, or do I have to wait? That's you got to wait. Okay, you all right. Wait. All right thank yeah, you. yeah. We uh, want to see how you do in this first <laughs> yeah, round. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thanks to both of the the nominees uh, for your service. Thanks for being here today. Uh, grateful for your support, Dr. Olson. I'll start with you. Um, thank you very much for the book that you presented thank in my you. office, uh, Pauline Berkey, I believe. Right. Could you, for the information of the members of the committee, could you explain how Colorado State is really responsible for the Peace Corps? <laughs> I'd be delighted to. Thank you. <laughs> Which is a true statement Which that you'd like to statement. submit for yes. the record. So, uh, not, not, yeah, thank you. Uh, and I also want to brag up Colorado because if you look at per capita, uh, Boulder, Colorado, I think is the number three uh, biggest uh, it, contributor it to the Peace Corps. Fort Collins, Colorado is number five to the Peace Corps. We're very uh, proud of that fact. Uh, so, thank you for your service. Uh, Ambassador Moley, in the 114th Congress, uh, this body passed legislation that would uh, require the State Department to develop a U.S. strategy to endorse and obtain observer status for Taiwan in appropriate international organizations, including Interpol, uh, the World Health Organization, the International Civil Aviation Organization, and others. Could you explain to me efforts that you would pursue uh, to ensure full U.S. support for Taiwan's meaningful participation in international organizations? Uh, Senator, we will uh, pursue uh, Taiwan's participation in any and all international fora 
uh, which does not have a requirement for participation of statehood. Uh, and we will make a very strong effort to get them involved. They're an important uh, participant in many ways and would add to the international debate in many, many of the fours uh, before the United Nations. If statehood not, is not required for membership, there is no reason why Taiwan should not be admitted. Uh, I think Taiwan can play a critical role in global leadership, whether it's uh, issues relating to uh, disease uh, control, eradication, uh, crime organizations and, and eradication and participation in uh, a number of organizations, excuse me, involved in, in uh, relief efforts, uh, criminal uh, efforts, uh, that we've got to make sure that they have their full participation. Thank you for that. Um, and I hope that you will give me this commitment, I think you just did, uh, that you will raise the highest levels with international counterparts, uh, including with representatives from the People's Republic of China, uh, that uh, commitment. You have my full commitment, Senator. Thank you very much, Ambassador. In September 2017, uh, I authored letters to 21 nations asking them to close their diplomatic facilities in Pyongyang and to support expelling North Korea from the United Nations. As part of the administration's maximum pressure campaign, would you support efforts to expel North Korea from the United Nations and other international organizations? I will support uh, the administration's position in respect to increasing leverage at every uh, level on DPRK. And I believe the administration has done a, a, a pressure campaign as well on many of these embassies and countries in Pyongyang. Is that correct? You will have my support. And you'll Senator. continue that. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, I yield my time. Thank you. Uh, uh, actually, Mr. Chairman, do you mind? I got everybody excited about yielding, but I do have a couple more questions I want to get to, if you don't mind. Can I Senator reclaim, Gardner. reclaiming my time? You may indeed. And round two, thank you. Yes. Um, think about a round two. Go ahead. <laughs> thank you. Uh, Ambassador Mullen, continuing with, with you uh, along this line of questioning, uh, could you share with me your strategy to combat the anti-Israel bias, bias at the United Nations and other international organizations? Well, it's particularly pervasive, Senator, as you know, at the Human Rights Council, uh, which is meeting as we speak uh, in Geneva. Uh, our Acting Assistant Secretary, Ambassador Molly Fee, is there as we speak, uh, and I know she will make every effort, and I certainly would if confirmed, to push back against anti-Israel bias as reflected in Item 7 of uh, the Human Rights Council's deliberations. And would you support withdrawal of the United States' participation in the Human Rights Council if they continue this anti-Israel bias? Uh, as you may know, we have uh, – we come up for our term limit in 2019, and I will, if confirmed, be participating in those deliberations to make a determination as to what is in our best interest uh, to seek another term or, or not. Um, sometimes it is uh, more appropriate to be inside the tent than outside the tent, but there are certainly uh, uh, arguments to be made on both, on both sides of that. And thank you. And last question, uh, could you outline a strategy that will help ensure and prevent the Palestinian Authority from obtaining international recognition, recognition at the United Nations and other international organizations? At, at this time, Senator, uh, we are not aware of any uh, effort for them to gain that uh, recognition, but we will fight it at every turn uh, should it arise. Uh, as you know, we left UNESCO as a consequence of them being admitted uh, to statehood in that organization. Uh, thank you, uh, Ambassador. And I have two minutes remaining on my time before I yield it back. Uh, uh, Dr. Olson, if you'd like to pontificate on Colorado State University, that's fine with me. Uh, if not, I'll yield back my time. <laughs> Go ahead. Just say two faculty in 1960 wrote what became the outline of Peace Corps. And in fact, they were invited back to Washington by Sarge Schreiber in March of 1961 to help guide the initial formation of Peace Corps. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Gardner. Uh, Senator Shaheen. Thank you. Thank you both for your willingness to be nominated for these very important posts. Ambassador Moley, 
As you may be aware, last month U.S. supported forces in Syria captured two ISIS fighters who are believed to be members of the group known as the Beatles. These two captured men are alleged to have been intimately involved in the imprisonment, torture, and murder of one of my former constituents, James Foley. Mr. Foley's family has publicly requested that President Trump take steps to ensure that these two men are held responsible for their crimes, meaning that they be tried either in the United States or in some sort of an international um, arena. If confirmed, do you commit to pursuing options to bring them to justice, including through international justice mechanisms? If confirmed, Senator, I do so commit. Uh, every effort should be made to bring these people to justice. And do you have any thoughts about where the most appropriate place would be to do that? Uh, quite frankly, Senator, I do not. I, I know what I've read in the uh, public media, but I am not uh, as yet confirmed and have not been read in on that issue. But I will commit to making every effort to bring them to justice. And we'll work with you uh, in, in that regard. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I know that the Foley family will as well. Um, I want to follow up a little bit on Senator Merkley's question about UNFPA, because in March of 2017, the Trump administration invoked the Kemp-Kasten Amendment to withhold U.S. funding for the United Nations Population Fund. Now, that amendment states that no U.S. funds may be made available to any organization or program which, as determined by the President of the United States, supports or participates in the management of a program of coercive abortion or involuntary sterilization. Ambassador Mully, are you aware or have you heard from anybody in the administration of any information that would suggest that UNFPA has been engaged in this prohibited behavior? Senator, only to the extent that uh, I've, in briefing materials, I have seen the uh, allegation that funding has gone to a Chinese health agency, which has in fact uh, implicitly or explicitly uh, uh, coerced uh, abortion. Having said that, I recognize uh, there are conflicting opinions, and as I mentioned, my predecessor, uh, as recently as April, wrote an article, uh, Sheba Crocker, uh, to the extent that she does not believe that uh, there is proof of that allegation. Uh, I am intending to reach out to uh, assistant, former Assistant Secretary of State Crocker uh, to hear her rationale for why she does not believe that the case. Having said that, if confirmed, of course, I will uh, then have information about the deliberation and the determination as was made uh, by the President in this regard. Um, well, I very much appreciate your following up on that. I am not aware, nor have I heard from anyone in the administration, that UNFPA is engaged in any behavior that would be um, mean that it would be prohibited from gaining funds. So I think your willingness to follow up is very important, and I hope you will share with this committee what you learn with that regard, and that we will take action if your finding is that they should not be prohibited from receiving funds, because as Senator Merkley pointed out, they do tremendous and very important work for women and children in so many parts of this world. And for us to dramatically reduce funding there has had serious consequences for women and families. Um, I also want to follow up on your comments about when it's appropriate to withdraw from international organizations. I, I appreciate that um, 
the international organizations don't always do what we would like them to do, and that sometimes presents foreign policy challenges. But the fact is, it seems to me that often when we withdraw, we reduce our ability to influence what those organizations do rather than increase it. So under what circumstances would you advise us withdrawing from an international organization? Senator, it would, uh, it would be determined by the circumstances of the time. Uh, if confirmed, I can assure you that I would make sure that all sides of the issue were heard because as I indicated earlier, uh, oftentimes as repugnant as some of these organizations' decisions may be, uh, better to be inside the tent as you've indicated than outside the tent. Uh, having been inside the tent and outside the tent, for example, as the head of delegation of the UN Human Rights Commission when I was ambassador to the predecessor to the Human Rights Council, uh, and later as the deputy head of delegation on four occasions uh, when we were inside the tent as members of the Human Rights Commission, uh, there are arguments to be made on both sides of that as to points of leverage that can be used from both the outside and from the inside but I would make sure that we made a, a, a mature, thoughtful decision before we would ever decide to leave an organization. Well, thank you, I appreciate that. I'm of the view that it's generally more important to be inside the tent looking out than outside the tent looking in. As do um, I, Senator. I will paraphrase that. <laughs> um, Ms. Olson, I very much appreciate your past experience at the Peace Corps and your willingness to take on um, the role as director there. And I, I'm, I'm not gonna ask you about the safety issue because I believe that is still a serious concern for Peace Corps volunteers and you've addressed that in your comments and I appreciate your talking about what you would do as director to address that and I would encourage you to follow through on that and anything that I or this committee can do to help you with that, I know we would be very willing to do so. I really appreciate your comments, Senator, and the agency and if I'm confirmed, look forward to working with you on continuing to strengthen the safety and security. Thank you very much, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you, Senator Shaheen. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses. I'll start, Dr. Olson, with you. I was at a breakfast this morning and I was chatting with a young man who told me that he had just gotten back from being a Peace Corps volunteer in Latin America. And I said, well, my committee this afternoon, we're gonna have the uh, nominee to be head of the Peace Corps before us. And he said, well, tell me about the nominee. I said, well, she was in the Peace Corps and I was gonna say other things about you, but he just stopped me and said, oh, I'm sure she'll be fine. <laughs> um, the the, the 230,000, as you described, uh, Peace Corps alums, um, they, they get a lot of confidence, even if they don't know you, they get a lot of confidence when there's a nominee who has lived what they've lived, and you've done that not only in your service in Tunisia, but as a country director, regional director, um, acting chief, other capacities with the Peace Corps. Do Thank you, make, Senator. Do we make enough use of our 230,000 Peace Corps veterans? Senator, that's a great question. And I would say probably not, that uh, the return volunteers are eager to serve, to continue in their Absolutely. work. Absolutely. And I think the ways that collectively we can reach out and encourage their cross-cultural skills, language skills, so that they can do even more to make communities stronger. I think the uh, Peace Corps volunteers that I know, including uh, in my own family, um, have so much to offer, and they are offering a lot. You shared the example of the individual in 
Memphis, I guess, in your uh, opening comments, which I read, they're doing so much on their own. They've, they've had this experience that has equipped them for a life of public service, but it seems that uh, there's, there's you know, just strategic ways we can use them to, to explain to our public the value of the kind of diplomacy uh, and soft power that Peace Corps represents. Um, and I would hope that one of your initiatives, obviously the current members recruiting, growing if possible, taking care of the health and safety needs of the current Peace Corps volunteers is the key responsibility. But I hope you'll contemplate ways that uh, you can continue to ask these wonderful returning Peace Corps veterans to consider doing even more because I think their skill set is, is a remarkable one. Um, but congratulations to you for your nomination. I want to ask you, um, Mr. Mulley, really quickly on global organizations. I was interested in your exchange with Jean Shaheen, uh, Senator Shaheen, and you're right, sometimes these organizations are reprehensible, but I, I, I will admit I was troubled by a recent move of the administration on an organization that wasn't reprehensible because it was only getting started. Um, in the September of 2016, uh, the U.S. worked together with other uh, organizations at the U.N. to put together a global compact on migration. Um, and the idea behind this global compact was that migrants and refugees are getting to be more and more of a constant in the world. And whether they're driven by natural disasters, weather emergencies, climate change, civil wars, corruption, uh, we see millions and millions of people uh, transiting the globe, uh, often from one continent to another as refugees and migrants, and that's not likely to change. And so the idea behind the Global Compact was maybe we nations of the world need to share best practices again and really think about policies. The U.S. was the sort of originator of the idea of the compact, and it was nothing more than an effort to convene a dialogue among all nations in the world to determine what future best practices might be. In December of uh, 2017, uh, on the eve of the first meeting of the Global Compact on Migration in Mexico, the Trump administration announced that it would not send a U.S. Uh, representative. Um, they, I think we were the only nation that did not have representation there. And I've asked State Department folks at the table um, why that is, and they've indicated that we're concerned about our sovereignty. They didn't say that the organization was reprehensible. They didn't say it had evidenced anti-Israel bias. They said we were concerned about our sovereignty. Obviously, that argument would suggest we would never be involved in any international organization, which is an untenable position. And there's nothing about participating in a global dialogue to share best practices about how to deal with migrants and refugees that involves an incursion into the sovereignty of the United States at all. So I guess I would first ask, do, do you know anything about the reason uh, for the decision of the United States to withdraw itself uniquely from the Global Compact on Migration? Uh, no, Senator, I do not. Uh, having said that, I will commit to you that I will, if confirmed, look into it and uh, uh, hopefully uh, give you a more um, studied response. Uh, I would I would appreciate that. Then would you would you agree with me that the issue of migrant and refugee flows <clears throat> in the world is a significant issue, both a humanitarian but also a national security issue that affects many nations, including the United States. It's clearly a significant issue. Uh, as to why we made that determination on December 17th, quite frankly, I uh, have not been read in. I do not know uh, the deliberations that took place. But I will 
confirm to you that I will find out. Great. I, I, um, I'm, a, I'm proud enough, maybe sometimes too proud, proud enough of our country to think that we're not going to come up with the best solutions or policies on this issue if the United States is absent from the table. I don't think we have all the answers, but I think we have an awful lot of answers and an awful lot of expertise. I assume that you would share that opinion as well. I do. All right. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I don't have other questions. Thank you, Senator Kane. Mr. Moley, have you been following the situation in eastern Ghouta, Syria, including the attacks by the Russians and the Assad regime on civilians and medical facilities? Uh, yes, Senator. And, uh, of course, I'm aware of the sanctions, uh, excuse me, the ceasefire that uh, uh, Ambassador Haley uh, has managed to finally get past the Security Council, despite delay from Russia itself. Uh, and I think she should deserve great credit for having achieved that this past Saturday. So uh, I, I would echo your, your uh, uh, commendation of, of her efforts and her team's efforts. Uh, Russia has killed hundreds of innocent men, women, and children um, using its position on uh, the Security Council to uh, delay that resolution calling for a ceasefire. When Russia acts this way at the Security Council, how do you believe the U.S. and the international community more broadly should respond? And, Senator, to add to that, Russia continues to obstruct uh, in the way of issuing a veto just yesterday, I believe, in respect to uh, its transmission of arms to Yemen. Uh, and they vetoed uh, the sanctions against Iran that would have been imposed at uh, Ambassador Haley's uh, recommendation. Um, so I think uh, working with Ambassador Haley and her team and others of our ambassadors, I think we need to push back uh, at Russia at every turn in regard to uh, their vetoing uh, peaceful resolutions uh, that otherwise would be passed. Clearly, uh, they're trying to test us on, on uh, many fronts, so I'm happy with that response. Uh, according to its website, the UN Relief and Works Agency uh, for Palestine refugees, or UNRWA, operates 677 elementary and preparatory schools in its five areas of operation, as well as eight secondary schools in Lebanon for approximately 515,000 Palestinian children. Helping to educate children who wouldn't otherwise receive such education is unambiguously good. I note, th note that the United States has been the lar largest single do donor to this UN relief agency. Mr. Moley, are you aware of uh, the educational activities supported uh, by this entity? Uh, yes, I am, and I agree with you, Senator, of their importance. Uh, there are certain other issues related to that of concern to us, but I do agree with the importance of educating children everywhere, most especially in Palestine. So when you reference some of the other issues, um, I'll dive in. Some of the textbooks being used in these schools reportedly include maps that omit the state of Israel and include images and examples that, are, that promote violence and support martyrdom. If we're trying to encourage a durable peace, and that's what we all want, a durable peace between the Israelis and Palestinians, textbooks with this sort of content are completely counterproductive. It's difficult for me to justify to my constituents using their tax dollars to support schools that utilize such textbooks. Mr. Moley, you seem to be aware of, of these reports. You're nodding affirmatively. Um, 
And, and so if confirmed, do you commit to looking into this issue and reporting back to my office within 90 days and a plan to ensure U.S. tax dollars are not supporting the use of textbooks that foster hate towards Israel, support terrorism, or degrade women? Senator, I uh, do commit to supporting uh, and working with you and your team uh, on this issue. Uh, I do have a relationship from my time in Geneva with the head of UNRWA, uh, Pierre Krakenbuhl, who at that time in Geneva was a deputy at the International Committee of the Red Cross. And I would like to think that we could use your leverage, the Senate's leverage, and that of the State Department to make sure that these textbooks are not uh, uh, proliferated. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. I'm going to move on to the UN Human Rights Council. Um, it, was, it was brought up earlier. What's your assessment of uh, the Council overall? What do you see as the most important reforms that the United States should pursue with respect to the Council? Well, as you know, uh, the Council, uh, previously the Commission, was reformed in 2006 to some benefit, but also to some, uh, some not, not so uh, benefit geographically in terms of representation. Having said that, I think it will be a continuing effort to assure that countries do not join uh, or not voted onto the Human Rights Council, principally for the purpose of defending themselves and using it as a forum to accuse us, uh, as well as Israel, uh, unfairly. So you've spoken to uh, the Council's membership in treatment of Israel, which uh, I appreciate. I share that concern. Um, so. Would membership reform uh, be both appropriate and an important objective, uh, including open ballots and competitive elections, were you uh, to be confirmed? Agreed, Senator. Absolutely. Well, as a, uh, the chairman, and I'm sitting next to the ranking member of the subcommittee that oversees multilateral institutions, uh, would you commit to, uh, if confirmed, working with uh, my subcommittee uh, in my office where possible related to UN Human Rights Council reform. Absolutely and unequivocally. Dr. Olson, uh, I'm sure you'd agree that when Americans uh, volunteer to join the Peace Corps as uh, roughly 65 Hoosiers have over the last mm -hmm. year, we want them to be able to serve safely, free from violence and sexual assault. You have spoken, uh, I think, unambiguously uh, about that and uh, I'm grateful for that. Um, in preparation for this hearing, have you, re you reviewed the Nick uh, Castle Peace Corps Reform Act of 2018? I think the name was invoked earlier. I'm not yes, sure the legislation was. was. Um, uh, could you speak to any general impressions you have regarding the bill? Thank you, Senator. Uh, it's an excellent bill, and it provides the opportunity for Peace Corps to continue to take very strong steps towards health and safety of the volunteer, particularly the health of the volunteer. And I look forward, if confirmed, to carry out the elements of the bill and to continue to enhance the care, the health care of every single Peace Corps volunteer. Now, I think you indicated earlier, you must have been referencing this legislation yes. uh, where uh, Senate committee staff worked with Peace Corps staff. And, and uh, uh, my supposition is that if confirmed, uh, you would commit your staff to uh, engaging this committee on all future reform efforts like that. Absolutely, Senator. Okay. Senator Merkley. Uh, thank you. Thank you. 
Uh, this month, uh, Senator Young and I sent the Senate and House Appropriations Committees a letter detailing severe food shortages worldwide and requesting increased funding for the World Food Program. I'm directing this to uh, Ambassador Moley. If confirmed, will you advocate for additional funding for the WFP? And what steps will you take to rally the international community to address a number of famine that we have currently ongoing around the world? As Senator, as you know, we are the largest contributor to the World Food Program, currently at 39%. Uh, I was obviously not part of the deliberations and determinations that prepared the current 2019 budget or the 2018 budget. Having said that, I would urge additional funding, whether it come from the United States or other participants, uh, to the World Food Program. Uh, we face four major famines currently, uh, Yemen, Nigeria, Sudan, Somalia, uh, and uh, potentially elsewhere. And obviously, uh, the World Food Program, uh, although you and I had a conversation last evening about better to uh, teach a person to fish than to give them a fish, nonetheless, if there are no fishes available, one has to send fishes to the people that need it most. I think you've summarized our conversation exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was just speaking earlier today with some experts on Sudan. Uh, who were uh, noting the uh, fact that so much of the challenge there is, is coming from the chaos and disruption of, of, of war that has made normal activities that one might support their family with uh, inc incredibly difficult, uh, but to the point of producing a famine. And, uh, my colleague, uh, Senator Young, has noted that in Yemen, just the enormous difficulty of even getting relief into the country and he continues to champion cranes and I haven't heard you talk about loading cranes today. I'm kind of surprised about that. Has <laughs> uh, continued to say we've got to make sure that we address these, these famines. I want to turn back to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency and my colleague pointed out uh, the uh, uh, enormous um, critique we have of some of the material in the textbooks. Uh, the, uh, the, what UNRWA has done is do is follow UN policy, which is to use the textbooks provided by the host nation. But they have then instructed their teachers not to teach that material that, that is offensive uh, and to provide supplemental materials. What else should be done to uh, address this situation? Senator, I suspect much needs to be done. Having said that, uh, I have not been read into the uh, situation as it currently uh, exists. Having said that, I pledge to you that I will, A, and B, I do believe that my relationship with Pierre Krakenbuhl, the current head of UNRWA, uh, will serve me well in that uh, function. Uh, and I look forward to working with both you and the chairman uh, and working cooperatively uh, and making sure we are all on the same page in respect to the exact circumstances on the ground if confirmed. Great. I'll look forward to your insights on that. And it is my understanding uh, that the government of Israel supports this aid. Uh, they recognize that the, it's very hard to have an economy in the West Bank because it is isolated. It's uh, uh, surrounded and, and doesn't have easy access for inputs to an economy or ability to, to get goods out to sell to the world and that uh, having uh, these uh, 500,000 children in school uh, learning and being able to hopefully contribute in some way 
uh, is better than having 500,000 children out of school. And they also do a tremendous amount on, on health care as, as, as well. Uh, do, you sh do you share the view that, that it's helpful to, in this challenging situation, to have this investment in health care and education? Absolutely and unequivocally. Uh, thank you. And then I, I just wanted to uh, kind of toss an open question your way. Uh, you can answer it as quickly or as, as uh, at length as you'd like, but you've served as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Mission in Geneva. What did you learn from that experience in terms of the value of multilateral engagement? Uh, multilateral engagement uh, is a keystone to American diplomacy. It's reflected in Pillar 4 of the National Security Strategy that was outlined by the President and released in December of 17. Um, I, I think one of the most disappointing things I did learn, however, Senator, was that oftentimes our friends mistook uh, compromise with concession. Uh, much of that, I believe, uh, comes from their own past experiences, colonial powers in Africa and elsewhere. Um, and I find, found that quite regrettable at times. Uh, having said that, we as a nation stand on principle and lead by example. Uh, and I would like to think that we could continue to do so. Uh, thank you. And I, I guess I do have one last question for you, which uh, uh, is you, you mentioned it is sometimes better to be inside the tent than outside. Uh, the Paris Accord or Paris Agreement is based on the UN Framework Convention on, on Climate Change. And at this point, uh, we would officially come out uh, about November 2020, I believe, is, 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 the, is the date. Uh, the, um, are there reasons to, to stay deeply engaged between now and then, and perhaps to stay in longer in terms of taking on the, the challenge of uh, climate? Uh, in, in respect to remaining engaged, absolutely, Senator. The fact is that the President made clear in the G20 Leaders Declaration that we remain committed to mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and, and I take that, uh, take that charge very seriously, uh, whether it's inside or outside. Thank you. Well, that concludes panel number one, and I'd like to thank both of you uh, for your thank time you. and your uh, interest in serving. We'll briefly adjourn in order to, to allow the nominees for panel number two to take their places at the table. I'd like to call this hearing back to order for panel number two. Uh, once again, I'd like to welcome Mr. Eric Bethel and Mr. Sean Karen Cross. Mr. Bethel is nominated to be the United States Alternative Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Mr. Karen Cross is nominated to be the Chief Executive Officer of the Millennial Challenge Corporation, or MCC. With that, I welcome you, Mr. Bethel, to provide your opening comments in five minutes or less, please. Thank you, Senator. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, and distinguished members of the Foreign Relations Committee, it's a great privilege to appear before you today. I'm honored that President Trump nominated me to serve as the U.S. Alternate uh, Executive Director uh, for the International Bank of Reconstruction and Development. I'm grateful for the support of the President and also for the support of Secretary Mnuchin. Before I begin, I'd like to introduce the members of my family sitting in the audience today. My wife, Michelle, my children, uh, Ana Cristina, uh, Nico, and Panchi, 
and my mother, Diana, who is an emigre from Cuba. I'd also like to acknowledge my late father, Paul Bethel, who spent a career in public service with the U.S. Department of State. His legacy is critical to my being with you here today. Most importantly, I'm especially grateful to have my wife, Michelle, in my life and for her continued support of my desire to serve our nation. I've uh, long aspired to work in the public sector, especially... Mr. Bethel, if I could just interrupt, my apologies. Yes. Uh, I understand we have votes around 4 o'clock, and I've just consulted with the ranking member. Um, if there's any way to maybe... I will I'll condense opening it. comments, uh, same with you, Mr. Karen Certainly. Cross. Um, I think we could probably get our questions done uh, before the vote and, and won't have to return. So Certainly. Uh, thank you, sir. Proceed. I've long aspired to work in the, in the public sector, especially in the capacity of finance and emerging markets and poverty reduction. Furthermore, I strongly believe in the mission of the World Bank, and I look forward to sharing my objectives uh, with you as a candidate and to answering any questions you might have. For more than two decades, I've worked at the intersection of finance and emerging markets. I've also lived and I've worked in Latin America. I speak Spanish, and I speak Mandarin, and I speak Portuguese. If confirmed, I'll utilize my professional experiences to promote the mission of the World Bank and to further U.S. interests. Cycles of corruption, poverty, and crime pose an enduring threat to the immense potential of the developing world, and I believe it's important to address these issues. We'd be wise to heed the words of Edmund Burke, who said that the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. If the developing world is to realize the future it deserves, it must overcome these longstanding obstacles with the support of the organization like the World Bank. And if confirmed, I'd seek to leverage the U.S. contributions to the bank to ensure that its finance efforts are used productively and that they remain consistent with our nation's foreign policy interests. And I'll also advocate for additional efforts to curb corruption, human trafficking, and abuses of power in order to promote opportunities for those in the developing world to live longer, healthier, better lives. Finally, if confirmed as alternate executive director of the IBRD, I'll work closely with members of this committee and its staff and with other members of Congress to perform my responsibilities as effectively as possible. Mr. Chairman, I thank you for this opportunity to appear before you and other members of the committee, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Karen Cross. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd like to start by thanking Senator Cornyn for his thoughtful introduction. I appreciate his confidence in my nomination. I've always been proud to have worked for him, and I'm hopeful that I'll be able to continue working for him, uh, working with him going forward. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, uh, members of the committee, it is a privilege to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to serve as the next Chief Executive Officer of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. And if I could just beg the committee's indulgence for a quick second, I'd like to introduce the members of my family here today. No one does anything alone, or at least I haven't, and I've been blessed with a great support network this is dad and mom, Andy and Donna, my sister-in-law, Margaret, my wife, Emily, uh, who I met when I was six, and these are my kids, India and Dominic. I met them when I was older. Um, I've been interested in foreign affairs and America's role in the world since I was a boy growing up in Minnesota. As a student, I studied international relations both in Washington, D.C. and overseas in England and as a graduate student living in England. Living abroad gave me an appreciation for the importance of how our country is perceived overseas and the power our country has to inspire and to be a force for good in the world. I became in, involved in national politics as a means to becoming engaged 
in the American democratic process and in government. I served in senior management uh, positions in two national party committees, overseeing hundreds of employees and budgets that aggregated in the hundreds of millions of dollars. When I served as chief, uh, chief operating officer and general counsel to these organizations, I was responsible for the reporting and the compliance of these highly regulated, highly scrutinized, very visible organizations. I feel very fortunate to have gained this management experience while so actively participating in the democratic process. I entered government when I joined the White House in January 2017. During my time in the administration, I've had the opportunity to participate in the national security policymaking process, and I've gained a practical respect to complement my formerly academic appreciation for the role of American soft power in U.S. foreign engagement. Emily and I do our best to teach our children what it means uh, to be an American and to appreciate it. Indeed, my daughter India just returned last week from New York in a model United Nations program. And it's our sincere hope that they leave today's hearing uh, remaining engaged, interested in U.S. engagement and assured that America is a constant force for good in the world. That good governance, economic freedom, and ruling justly aren't just words, but concrete values that America supports throughout the world to improve lives and support her interests. I am honored and humbled to be nominated to lead the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which embodies this. It provides a framework that mobilizes these ideals while also requiring partner country commitment and holding partner countries accountable. If, nom if confirmed, I have three overarching priorities that I would pursue. First, I would maintain the MCC's model, its strong track record of data-driven, accountable results and I would seek to deepen the bipartisan support the agency has enjoyed. And to do this, I would rely on MCC's deeply knowledgeable, talented, and diverse staff. Second, I would seek to increase collaboration with, with other U.S. government agencies and third-party partners, in particular U.S. businesses, and maximize the crowding in of these resources as well as the crowding in of domestic uh, partner country resources. Finally, I'd like to help realize the potential of regional compacts. Legislation pending here before the Senate would open the door to MCCs being able to build regional markets. And I believe that if carefully done and done in a focused manner, there is great potential there. Mr. Chairman, the MCC is a tremendous asset in America's foreign policy toolkit. If confirmed, I would commit to work hand in hand with this committee with Congress, with the administration, and other MCC stakeholders to maintain its record of bipartisan support and measured accountability. I'm honored to be here. I look forward to answering any of your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Karen Cross. Um, uh, you quickly summarized uh, your professional background. What professional qualities uh, have prepared you uh, to um, assume this position? Uh, give me a concise answer, um, uh, one or two things, please. Yes, sir. Uh, my management experience overseeing an organization, two organizations, national in scope, subject to, a, um, uh, to an enormous amount of scrutiny, in particular on their budgets, how the money is raised and spent. And as uh, council being responsible for the compliance of the organization, and that transparency is something that, and building that culture of compliance, which I was responsible for, is something that I believe is transferable to the MCC. In fact, the MCC's record of transparency is vital to the agency, 
and I intend to, I intend to uh, continue that. Mr. Karen Cross, I'm glad you emphasized the importance of uh, the term is in the development uh, community crowding in private sector resources uh, in compact countries served by MCC. Uh, what more can we do in these area, in, in this particular area to get more money crowded in? Sure, thank you for the question, Senator. I, there are several different avenues to this. Uh, the study that you uh, co-chaired with Senator Shaheen uh, noted that we're U.S. foreign assistance is engaged in a, in a country, it's, it's a relatively small portion. In fact, 50% of that or so is private, uh, private capital flowing in. And so I would seek to uh, increase that engagement. I think the efforts being made, for example, in Ghana and the compact that we're engaged in there um, and the stamp of approval that the MCC creates in working with these governments to, uh, to create institutional reform targeted at corruption, for example, really helps engage that, that private sector capital. I think there's also, on the, on the other end of it, maximizing um, the leverage that other entities bring, such as OPIC, and working to de-risk these environments and draw more capital in. Our office will continue to look closely at, 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 at uh, this matter. We want to be supportive, however possible. So uh, if confirmed, if you discover that additional authorities or resources are needed in order to optimize the involvement of the private sector, will you let uh, myself and our office know so that we can work with MCC to get you those resources and or authorities? Absolutely. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Karen Cross, with regard to the choice of MCC compact recipients, what weight would you place on a country's scorecard performance uh, versus its strategic importance to the United States? Sure, Senator. The I think the MCC uh, has such done such a has a great track record of success because it's adhered to a very objective model in country selection. And so those criteria, those eligibility criteria on good governance, economic freedom, and investment in the people are key to the agency's uh, success. I think that um, with respect to the larger strategic interests of the United States, the way I view it is MCC isn't deployed necessarily strategically, but where it is active, it serves to buttress and support U.S. strategic interests. And then finally, the board of directors that uh, that works with the MCC and oversees it is really there to provide that last overarching spectrum of, uh, of, of policy input um, over the MCC's objective criteria. So before a country is selected eligible for a compact, even if it hits those criteria, it still needs to be approved by the board of directors uh, in, order, in order to engage in a compact. So your point is there's already a measure of discretion built into the system uh, because uh, the board of directors is able to exercise. There is, there is, sir. There's a measure of discretion that's built in on that on that level, and then there's also the threshold programs of uh, the MCC, which address countries that don't quite meet that eligibility criteria, but are on the verge, yeah. and through institutional reforms, may be able to get there. Thank you, Senator Merkley. Uh, thank you much, uh, both of you. And the question I wanted to ask you, Mr. Bethel, is related to the loans that the World Bank has made to, to Burma. Uh, the government of Burma and the military of Burma have been engaged in a massive ethnic cleansing operation, uh, resulting in more than 300 villages burned, uh, children killed, 
women and daughters raped, fathers slaughtered, and have driven more than, well, now almost 700,000 people across the border. In that type of situation, how should the World Bank respond to use its, its leverage? Should it cut off loans? Should it make them continue to, contingent upon dramatic changes in the governance? Should it uh, say, we'll lend you money, but it has to go to very specific projects and monitor it carefully? Should it insist that international organizations be admitted to Rakhine State before any additional assistance is provided? How, how, can, the, how can the IBRD use its leverage? Or how should it use its leverage? Thank you, Senator. Uh, I think that's a very important consideration. Um, having uh, been to Burma in the last couple of years, uh, I'm very familiar with the issue, uh, the Rohingya issue that you're referring to, uh, and it's a very challenging and complicated issue. Um, uh, um, it's, it's too early to say, uh, at least in, in, in my estimation, uh, what should be done uh, until and if I'm fortunate enough uh, to be confirmed. Uh, and it would be, uh, I don't know that it would be appropriate for me to comment on uh, the specific World Bank policy or loans that are being administered or not in this case. Um, but the general sentiment is one where uh, the World Bank should not be lending to uh, 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 countries that either are state sponsors of terror or that are uh, committing uh, uh, atrocious acts on their own uh, population, generally speaking. I appreciate uh, the question, and should I be confirmed, I'd be delighted to work with your committee on addressing the issue. Thank you. I appreciate that. And Mr. Karen Cross, uh, when you studied international relations at American University, I believe? Uh, yes, sir. Did you specialize in any particular area of international relations, Middle East policy, Asian policy, national security, any particular aspect? Sure. My uh, Both my uh, college undergraduate thesis and my graduate uh, dissertation were done in intelligence. Okay. And in intelligence. And so in the course of, of that, uh, did you take a lot of courses that were basically related to third world economic development? I did take a international economics course at Cambridge, sir. Uh, focused on developing nations? It was, developing nations were a portion of the course, yes. And can you share with us if you've had the opportunity to, to uh, live in, or we had the Peace Corps up here earlier, any, any projects you've had in developing nations? No, sir, I haven't lived in a developing nation. And one of the, if confirmed, one of the first things I would plan to do is to travel and put my feet on the ground and deal with the host government and put my eyes on MCC's work. Have, have you been able to, uh, have you currently traveled to any of the compact nations? I have not, Senator, but that would be a uh, immediate priority of mine. And do you speak any foreign languages? I do not, sir. Okay. Uh, the I wanted to ask you a couple questions related to Rens Priebus, uh, your work with him as, as uh, a top advisor uh, to the chief of staff. And you've already answered these. I know the answers, but I think it's valuable to have them on the record, unless, unless I got the answers wrong. But did you have any involvement in the development or execution of the president's Muslim ban? I did not, sir. Did you have any discussions involved in the uh, firing of Jim Comey? No, sir. Uh, have you been interviewed or do you expect to be interviewed as part of Robert Mueller's Russia investigation? I have not been okay. and I do not expect to be. 
So the MCC is a partner to more conventional uh, U.S. aid and development. What do you see as kind of the valuable, what's, what's, what do you see it as, as most significant about its unique strategy? I think the MCC is so unique because it occupies a very uh, singular niche along the development arc of, uh, of a country that it's working with. And so it's really transitioning from that USAID portion to a place where a country is attempting to build a sustainable economy. And it's, it's a need and merit system. So we're cons the agency is looking to consolidate gains in poor countries who are pursuing good policies, pursuing uh, open government, economic freedom for their people, and investing into, the, into their people. And that f singular mission, and in, with the staff that I have met and dealt with at the MCC, who are so impressive. Uh, they are very mission-driven. It is a very professional organization. And I think that makes it, uh, makes it very unique. I also, Senator, think it's unique in the respect that all of its projects are tracked and measured. And that's not just some internal MCC white paper. It's measured by independent third-party agencies and, and organizations. And then that's put online and put out into the public. And that builds, I believe, great confidence in, uh, in the MCC's expenditure of taxpayer dollars thank and, you, thank and you. helps make the case for U.S. assistance. Uh, thank you. One of the issues that's come up has been reports that the um, eight political positions that are at MCC, that there's plans by the White House to expand that uh, to uh, more than two dozen. Are you familiar with those, those plans and do you have an opinion on that? I'm not familiar with those plans, Senator. Um, I should say I appreciate the time that you and I have uh, spent discussing the matter and, and with your staff. And what I can commit to you is that if confirmed, I would strive to keep the MCC a performance-based professional development organization. I think that that is, I think both its bipartisan support that it's enjoyed and the confidence of its talented staff and maintaining uh, that staff is key to, uh, to the agency's success. So you would not seek or support expanding the political positions beyond the eight positions that there are currently on the staff? Correct, Senator. I am not looking to politicize the MCC. Thank you. And uh, I, th I thought I should give you a chance to just comment on the uh, racial bias lawsuit that uh, was at RNC and uh, uh, it's been, it was, it was settled, and I assume those were not government funds that it was settled with, those were campaign side funds? That's correct. They were, they were campaign um, private donations to the committee. And do you support uh, diversity and non-discrimination within the organization? Absolutely, Senator. I believe it's a, I believe it's a very important, I believe diversity should be a celebrated thing. I believe it enriches the work environment. I believe particularly in an agency like the MCC, it leads to better decision making. And if confirmed, I would, I would seek to, uh, to grow the agency's diversity. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I want to uh, thank our nominees for appearing here today. That concludes our hearing. For the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. Thank you again to each of you. This hearing is adjourned. Thank you.